0: Follow along with me in the scriptures as we read Colossians 3 verses 5 to 7. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. For the past two weeks, we have been looking at these three verses as we have been trying to define what a life that is lived for Christ looks like. And we have looked for the past two weeks from these three verses that a life that is lived for Christ will be defined by death. The Christian life is not only defined by death because we remember that we were once dead in our sins, but the Christian life is also defined by death because there is a constant call to put to death what is earthly in us. And the assurance that we hold as we seek to put to death these things in our life that are listed in verse 5, the assurance we have is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you can rest assured that Christ's victory on the cross that we've sung about this morning, it has stripped the chains of sin and death from off of you so that you are no longer enslaved to sin. So the call to put to death is is the call to walk in the victory which Jesus has provided for us. This does not mean, however, that you will no longer struggle with sin. You struggle with sin just like I struggle with sin. What it does mean is that that sin which we so easily struggle with, as the writer in Hebrews says, that sin which so easily besets us or gets us off track, that sin or those sins will not have the final say in your life. Isn't that a comfort? If you are a believer in Jesus, We are no longer enslaved to sin, not because we have overcome sin, but because Jesus has overcome sin. And as we seek to persevere in the Christian life, and we seek to put to death these earthly things, we do so. In the encouragement and the assurance that Jesus has defeated them for us and the things we struggle with will not have the final say in our life. This victory and assurance is what you are given to live your life in, it is what gives you the ability to put to death the works of sin in your life on a daily basis. In other words, what I'm saying this morning, if you forget Jesus in your Christian life, then you are forgetting everything. He is the life giver to your soul. He is the sustainer of your faith. He is the one that we place our assurance on even in the midst of. Of what we just sang about our failures. This, uh, he will hold me fast. It says, though my love is so often cold. What? He holds us fast. You see, as I have said several times, the way to victory that verses 5 and on will tell us The the key to victory is to remember what verses 3 and 4 say of, of Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Well, today we're going to continue looking at what a life defined by Christ looks like. We're going to continue to talk about our walk in Christ, would you continue reading along with me as we read verses 8 to 11? But now, you must put them all away. Now we have another list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another This morning we're going to look at a second characteristic of a life that's defined by Christ. Not only is our life in Christ defined by death, a putting to death of that which is earthly in us, remembering that it's Jesus that has given us life, but secondly, our walk in Christ is defined by the new, defined by the new. Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Father, we come to You, holding only to the assurance that it is You that holds us fast. Lord, left to ourself, none of us could ever, ever live for You. Father, left to ourself, we would just wander away. But God, you promise to keep that which you have gained. Father, you promise to uphold those who you have called to yourself. Lord, we come today and we we study your word, Father, not in human confidence, but in a God confidence. Father, would you teach us through the Holy Spirit this morning? Would you give us nuggets of truth to live by? Would you so show us that, Lord, while we seek to strive in our Christian life, Father, it is you that is giving us the energy for that striving. Lord, it is you at work in our hearts that is producing those outward changes. And Lord, I just pray that if there is one today that does not know you as their Savior, Father, that as you promise, your word does not return empty. Father, that you would plant the seed of the gospel in hearts. Father, both those that are without you and those of us that are your followers, how we all need the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Our walk in Christ is to, be, is to be defined by the new. You see, what was old is past, and what is new has come. And in verses 8 to 9, we see a call of renewal. How are we to live in the new? Verse 8 and 9 show us what is, characteri- what is characteristic of the life. That is, living in the newness that Jesus has brought us. Because we see that this call to renewal, it is a present call. Notice that in the beginning of verse 8 it says, But now you must put them all away. Now if you are careful, if you're carefully reading, you notice some interesting things here. There is a lot of talk about time. For instance, look at verse 7. It says, "...in these you too once walked." Past occurrence. Once this was true of you, if you are a believer in Jesus. And then it goes on and says, "...when you were living in them again." Another word describing past time, once and when. So these things that we read of, that we have gone in detail about, in verse 5, these sexual sins that that is really an outworking of the heart, our heart of covetousness, is characteristic of that which is once old. And then we have a new perspective of time in verse 8. What is that new perspective of time that you read of? What word describes this new perspective? What is it? It's now. So once, when, now. You see, the believer lives according to a different drumbeat than what That person once lived before they came to Christ. The Bible talks about the idea that our fruits reveal what the root is sourced in. And if our roots are sourced into the things of this world, that is an indicator that we are not connected to Christ, that we are not one of His. And as we discussed last week, that does not mean, as we uh, will see and have talked about in detail, that the believer no longer struggles with sin. But if the believer continues in these things without remorse, without repentance, it is a sign that the root is not sourced in Christ. You see, there is a change that occurs. You see, the time has come Paul is saying, once you were this, but contrasting this, what was formerly characteristic, but now. You see, folks, the time has come for you and for me to act in light of our identity. Like what Terry read, and and these passages of Scripture are, are picked out months in advance Our Scripture readings during our morning service. And it just so happens, quote unquote, that Terry read the passage of Scripture that he did today. As as in Romans 13 says, the time is far spent. It's time to awake. It's time to put these things off. How How many days are we going to let idly go by where our true identity and our living are at odds. You see, what does Ephesians 2, 4-6 say? It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or our sins, He made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us that are in Christ Jesus. Man, when our hearts are in tune with the Gospel, it's hard to read that verse without just shouting out and saying, Amen! Let's say that today, right? Amen! Amen! It's almost as Paul, in the middle of that verse, is just so caught up with excitement that he stops his sentence. You see the two dashes, and he says, man, by grace you've been saved. It is his grace that has stooped down to your level that when you were practicing all these these horrible sins, that that didn't keep God from you. He comes down and he purchases you. He pays for those sins and he calls you to himself. And now you're given a standing in the heavenly places with Him. We are now partakers of the inheritance of Christ. What is His inheritance? It's the whole world, it's everything. It's the new heaven and the new earth. We are now His. And guess what? His grace is so marvelous to us that as the last section of that passage says, He has saved us. He has called us to himself. The bride, when Jesus returns, will be complete, both from the Old and the New Testament. One bride, the eternal church, will forever be his trophy piece. We will be testimonies to the immeasurable riches of his grace. A new humanity. Amen? Amen. You read a lot about, and today you hear the term trophy wife, or you see these these TLC documentary shows um, where you have kids that, whether it be dancing or different things, you know, it's like the, the, the parent is like, wants this more than the kid and it's like they they consider these kids like trophies well you know what we are god's trophies but it's not because of what we do it's because of what he has done for us and it is him saying look at my grace i will be glorified among my people they The trophy that he has of us. I mean, we have, look at us. It can't be anything in and of ourselves that God would be proud about. God works to show his greatness in what he has done for us. For all eternity, we will be reflections of the greatness of God. But let me ask you on this side of eternity, In this life, are you living your life as if you are a trophy piece of God's grace? Man, just like trophy pieces collect dust. Maybe, you know, you you won that 50-yard dash in 8th grade. You got that trophy. You won that bowling tournament in 1984. And that thing has a bunch of dust on it. Well, you know what? A lot of times we can collect dust not because God has, has just left us, but because we become so insensitive to what our identity is that we lose sight of what Jesus has called us to. And we got so much dust on our spiritual eyes that we talk about things like what we're talking about right now. And man, if your heart doesn't rejoice and it isn't excited and there is something within you, i.e. the Holy Spirit, that is just stirring something inside you, maybe you need to ask him to wipe off some dust off of your eyes. Because man, this is eternal stuff. And it is only when we understand this that we are, as verse 5 says, able to put to death what is earthly in us. And then as we read in verse 8 that we are able to put them all away. You see, this is a call to action. We realize what we have been won to. We realize the eternal inheritance that we have with Jesus. Jesus. And man, that springs us into action. To put away the works of the flesh. He says you must put them all away. And again, he gives a characteristic list of the types. Not everything, but the types of things we are to put away. You see this word put away, it has the idea uh, the general idea. This word has been used before of putting away or taking off clothes. For instance, in, in Acts 7:58, when Stephen was stoned in the Bible, the very first Christian martyr, it says they cast him out of the city, cast Stephen out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That word laid down is the same exact word we have here to put away. So the idea is, man, in order to throw those heavy stones on this guy, I need to take off my outer coat. And I'm going to lay them at the, this guy's feet. More specifically, however, we are not to be taking off or putting away clothing, we are to be putting away an old way of life. For instance, Romans 13.12, a verse Terry read today, it says this, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Same word. Cast off. Same idea. And, and listen, this, this, is, this, this is anti-typical to what we would naturally think. When you look at, at, verse thir- at verse 12 here of Romans 13, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of of darkness. Now, what do those who are without Christ, what is a natural proclivity because of the spiritual deadness of their souls? It is to keep on. It is to continue in. Why? Because darkness is the friend of one without Christ. Satan desires to keep in darkness. But we are called because the day is at hand, we are children of the day, and we are to put on not the armor of darkness but the armor of light. Ephesians 4:22 says, "put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, it is corrupt, through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. This language is very familiar to the Bible. You see, this is a decisive act by God, we're going to see in this passage, that that we have been given light. We, We are no longer children of the darkness. It's a decisive act by God, but it also has to be practically carried out in our Christian living, in our sanctification And then we come to this list, just as there were five items listed in verse 5, so there are five items, five characteristic items listed in verse 8. And we're just going to briefly look at these. You see, the context in verse 5 was dealing with heart covetousness, heart covetousness idolatry and one of the main ways that works itself out is in the sexual realm. In verse 8 we see as well heart issues but the context here is the works of the flesh that break unity in Christ's body. You remember what Paul said in in chapter 2 verse 19 That the false teachers that were trying to deceive the body of Christ, that they were not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That is a healthy body. And the context is that which destroys the health in that body. Let's look at some of these things. You see, first of all, anger listed seems quite a general characteristic, is it not? Again, Paul is giving categories. He's not getting into super specifics. These are works of the flesh. Anger here, it denotes a person that is characterized by anger. In other words, it's kind of a constant simmering. Something's always below the surface. This guy has got an angry demeanor to him. A chronically angry person. How many of you at home have a tea kettle? Okay. Does it make the, the, the annoying whistle when it gets boiling? I, I, I really don't like tea kettles because that sound just annoys me. Especially when you're like me and you let it go for like 10 minutes. You know. <laughs> By the time you get to it, everything's evaporated out. Imagine a word picture of this angry person. There is a constant dull whistling because in, internally there is a constant bubbling below the surface. That's the kind of anger that Paul's describing here. A constant simmering, a chronically angry person And that leads us to the next word, wrath. You may say, you know, the the words are so close to anger, wrath. How do you differentiate the two? And, And the two really overlap a lot. In fact, they are very often put together. For instance, Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, again, those are together, and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice but if there is a differentiation here between anger and wrath it is this many individuals will say and it seems that the differentiation here is that wrath has more to do with quick outbursts of anger in other words if you had that tea kettle that is on the stove and it's and it's whistling and and I know with tea kettles it can't do this but all of the sudden if that thing was really full, it just starts boiling over, spilling out. It's outbursts of anger. It's anger that boils over. A person who blows up. Paul says, let this be put away from you. Listen, every time that I lose my cool at home, It's not just because of that one little incident that happened. It's because there is something internally going on. Maybe it's just something that uh, in my mind I'm just struggling with and it's bringing stress, it's it's bringing irritation. And then that outburst of anger is simply an expression of what is already in here. Listen, if you are chronically angry If you are given to outbursts of wrath, which we all are, again, God's law, it wipes us all out. I mean, it lays us all flat on our face. None of us can walk away from here saying we don't have a problem with anger or wrath. It's just to what degree, not not if. But the next time this happens to you, don't say, yeah man, it's just... I've been under a lot of stress, sorry about that. Yeah, you know, that guy cut me off, and, 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 and if he wouldn't have done that. Listen, those are just incidences that draw out what's already true in your heart. You've heard of the tea bag theory, right? That tea bag stays that nice little tea bag while it's dry, but you put that thing in hot water, and guess what? Everything flows out, all of the contents. Um, seep out that the causes the liquid to change because it's in the hot water. Man, that's our heart. Ran across an interesting story. How many of you know who Jonathan Edwards is? He was a great revivalist in the 18th century. Um, he, uh, the first great awakening which, which God mightily used to cause a great spiritual revival. He was a key part of that. He preached a sermon, maybe you've heard of it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, it is said that Jonathan Edwards, who was also the third president of Princeton, and he's called America's greatest thinker, he had a daughter with an ungovernable, governable temper. As is often the case, the problem was not known to the outside world. And listen, that's another thing. You might be able to have everybody else fooled with your anger problem, but you do not have your family fooled. And you certainly don't have God fooled. Sometimes the people with the worst anger problems, you can think, what? They're the nicest guy. Yeah, because we can put on a good show. But what about your true heart? What about those that you are around 24-7? As we continue, she had a, a uh, horrible temper, not known to the outside community. Well, guess what happened? A young man fell in love with this daughter and sought her hand in marriage. You can't have her, was the abrupt answer of Jonathan Edwards. Imagine that. You're already nervous enough asking for daughter's hand in marriage. But I love her, the young man replied. You can't have her, said Edwards. But she loves me, replied the young man. Again, Edwards said, you can't have her. Why, asked the young man. Get what he said. Because she is not worthy of you. Again, this was a young man at the seminary. But, he asked, she's a Christian, is she not? And get what he said, yes, she is a Christian, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. (laughs) The grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. Isn't that often sad, but true? If we are a Christian, our heart should not be looking at our spouse right now. It should not be looking at our, our friend or ex-friend or that side of the family that we no longer have anything to do with. It should be looking within. Because the sin of anger and wrath is inside each of us. And how we do not want to be a people that, yes, the grace of God can live... <laughs> with us, but man, nobody else ever can. How do people relate around you? Are they afraid you're going to rip their heads off? Do they feel like they have to walk around eggshells with you? Could it be you need to bring your anger and wrath before the throne of God and say, God, help me by your power to put these things off? if you're in a relationship where you have a family member who does greatly struggle with this, there is grace that He offers you as well. To show the love and the grace and the kindness of Christ, even in the midst of a broken relationship. But then thirdly, He says malice. This word malice is actually the word that we get wickedness from. In general, it's just the word wickedness. But in the context here of these sins that divide the body, it is a specific kind of wickedness. It is a a wickedness that encompasses hateful, malicious behavior. In other words, man, I am going to get back at that person. Man, that anger, that wrath wells up, and I may not even lash out with my tongue, but I am going to to be malicious to them to get my revenge. Then we see this word slander. Again, if you were to just translate this verse isolated from its context, it's the word blasphemy. But in context... It is a specific kind of blasphemy. Not only can it be a blasphemy against God, but it can be a blasphemy of defaming one's fellow neighbor. Aren't we experts at this and we try to make it sound spiritual? Listen, when you talk about someone behind their back, even if it's in the form of a prayer request, and that person does not need to know that information, that is slander. In James it says this, speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Here's the irony, from the same mouth come blessing and cursings. And what does he say? My brothers, these things ought not to be so. When we are talking about another individual... We need to ask ourselves, does this person need to know this information? And if they do, why? You see, there's one thing that maybe someone is working with a fellow brother, sister in Christ, and, and, and they're, they're trying to, to work with this individual, and there's some information that that person needs to know as they work alongside that person. But then there's the other thing where it's, hey, did you hear about that this person did this? Are the things that you are saying about another brother or sister in Christ, is it slander? And then he ends this list by talking about obscene talk. This can kind of mean one of two things, or even both. Lewd, dirty talk. That which is filthy. But again, in the context, it seems to mean language that is abusive. Abusive. Obscene talk, that which is not appropriate to say to another individual. Abusive language. And what does it say? It says abusive language or or, um, uh, obscene talk. Where does it come from in the text? From out of your mouth, right? And it's easy to say to ourselves, okay, you know, Don't say that. Next time. But the warning that James gives us is, again, so true that these sins of the tongue, this little member in our body that it says it's like a rudder, it controls the whole ship, But the reality is is that this little member of our body that causes so much destruction and disunity, it is simply a reflection once again, just like covetousness and all those other sins, it is a reflection of the heart. What does Jesus say? It says, we shouldn't fear that which goes into the mouth. We should fear that which comes out of the mouth because that which comes out of the mouth It's from the heart. Have you allowed inappropriate talk to proceed from your mouth even this morning to your spouse, to your children, to your parents, about your church, about your friends, your co-workers. Folks, as James says, my brothers, my sisters, these things ought not to be so. You see, we are to live in the new and this is what characterizes the old. I mean, what is the society... In the culture of our world, it is man, whatever you got to do to climb up the ladder, you do it. If you got to step over somebody, well, do it, just do it well. That is not to characterize God's people, that is not to characterize Christ's church. And yet, he not only, Paul not only gives us a call here to put these things off, but he gives us in verse 9, we see, stemming off of this list, a call to honesty. Honesty with one another. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Don't lie. You see, in light of the above sins, How does verse 9 fit in with verse 8? What we see here is this constant temptation to divide the body that chapter 2 verse 19 said is fit together so that it can grow in God. And the constant temptation is to allow sins of self to get in the way. You see, the problem was a blatant disregard for others. It was a saturation in self-centered, self-promoting thinking. I mean, even to follow the false teachers that that Paul's warning against, why would they do this? Because they could think I can gain a higher higher level of spirituality if I do this. It's all about self. Self. Folks, when self is on the throne, Christ cannot be. But in the midst of all of this, we have been given a great assurance. You see, not only have we been, been given a call to, to be renewed in what Jesus has already given us, we have been given a great assurance of renewal. Look at what verse, the end of verse 9 says. Do not lie to one another Well, okay, so how can we? Seen or because you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, you may be saying, whoa, 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 now I'm confused here because Paul just told me to take this stuff off And now it's saying this stuff has already been taken off. So so how am I supposed to to bring these two concepts together? Well, you see, the call of verses 5 and 8 to put to death and to put away must be seen in light of the foundation that Jesus has already accomplished this for us. Amen? Again, it is not that we are experiencing victory every day of our life in these areas, but it is the fact that Jesus has already gained the victory and these things will no longer, at the end of the day, at the, at, in eternity, will no longer have the final say in our life. The chains have been loosed. Now what we must do is seek to simply, through God's power, realize that that chain is no longer bolted shut and open those off and toss them away and walk out of the prison cell of sin's captivity. So what we are seeking to accomplish is ultimately already true of us. So we know the end of the story. We just don't have the daily daily steps along the way of of each and every turn of life. But we have the all-encompassing plan of God. So if we're a believer, we know that we are ultimately victors. That's why Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. I mean, whatever sin, that we are struggling with. Ultimately, we are victors. I mean, that could be anger. That could be hatred. That could be lying. That could be, as we saw in verse 5, a sexual lust, the desire to go to that computer, to go to that website, to be in that wrong relationship. Uh, That all of those things, that, that pull us, that God's Word says is when we act upon those things are not right. It could be a a desire for that same-sex relationship. It could be whatever. But folks, if we're a believer, those sins don't define us. We know the end of the story. That is why the, the sexual revolution in America is so wrong because that aspect of life is not what defines a person? You're basically saying that this little area is what defines everything about me. Folks, our identity, if my identity is found in what I desire or struggle with, then man, I am a man most miserable. My confidence is that I am a child of the King. I have been created in God's image. Yes, I suffer from the effects of the fall and there are things that I will naturally struggle with that you may not. There are things you naturally struggle with that I may not. But we are all living under the effects of the fall, but folks, that will go away upon Jesus' return. Amen? That is not the end of the story. The new has been put on. And the new, it says in verse 10, it is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Do you get what that's saying? It's saying that this has already happened in the past. You have uh, put on the new self when Jesus has clothed you in His righteousness. and. As you walk this Christian life that can seem oh so difficult, it can seem oh so lonely, it can seem oh so much of a struggle, but man, as you go, you can walk with the confidence that that new person that Jesus has created you to be, it is being renewed. Renewed. And how is it renewed? It is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, what is the old self? The old self is that life which was under the dominion of the old Adam. We were dead spiritually because of Adam's sin. The new self is that self which is now under the dominion of Christ, a part of the new creation. We are now alive in Christ, no longer under sin's dominion. We are spiritually alive. And God makes our walk and our standing align more and more as we grow in our Christian life till the day He calls us home and we no longer struggle with sin. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, despite everything going on around him, he says, "We do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self it is being renewed day by day. There is strength to go another day. We don't have to wallow in doubt and fear. We are being renewed. Christ will hold us fast." And lastly, as we close, the Christ-defined life is characterized not just by death, not just by renewal, it is characterized by Christ Himself. Verse 11 is really the theme verse of this entire series. It says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all Folks, just three three final thoughts I want to leave with you. We are defined by Christ. First of all, if you're a believer today, you walk in light of the new creation. You see, folks, we have been given the new creation. We are 2 Corinthians 5:17 says new creations. The ultimate climax of God's redemptive work will be a new heaven and new earth, but we are the first fruits of that work. We don't walk according to the course of this world. We walk to a different kingdom. Secondly, we relate to one another in light of the new creation. The text says there's not Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. No, those, those earthly distinctions no longer exist in God's new creation, in God's new humanity. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. That does not mean that God's family does not have certain roles that we play, but it means we are all on common ground. Are you relating to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as a fellow fellow member of the new creation that you will share eternity with? Say, well, the person that I'm struggling with isn't a believer. Are you living a life exemplary of what the new creation should look like? And then thirdly, We are defined by Christ in the new creation. Notice this is the most assuring two phrases in Scripture, but Christ is all and in all. What is that saying? It's saying that in the new creation, Jesus is the head. Christ is all. He is the exalted one. He is the one we look to. He is the one we put our faith in. He is the one that deserves and will receive the honor, praise, and glory. Christ is all. And then it says, and in all. That's not some pantheistic idea that Jesus, that, that God is in the trees and God is in the grass and God's in the wind and God's in nature. God uses all those things. What it's saying, Christ indwells all of those that are a part of this new creation. He indwells us, brothers, sisters, if we are His children. And He is the one that will lead us and that will enable us to cast off these works of the flesh. We cannot do it on our own. Is Christ your all in your practical everyday living? Because that's what Scripture says. He is and He should be. Let's pray.